Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, you're going to meet Hank Philippi Ryan. If you don't already know her, she is a best-selling author of 13 thrillers. She's won the most prestigious awards in that genre. She's got five Agathas and a coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. She's also been an on-air investigative reporter for Boston's uh, WHDH-TV. She has 37 Emmys. I have known her when I lived in uh, Boston. I saw her on TV. Um, she is very much a famous personality in Boston. And then she started writing mysteries, and I met her through various publishing events, uh, we became friends. And you're going to hear us talk about how she became a writer. In fact, how she became a journalist, how she moved to Boston, because she's originally from the Midwest. Uh, and like many creative, amazing people, she has not had a straight line journey, either in life or in her creative process. If you want to know more about Hank or me or whatever, you can always go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a message. I will get back to you. If you want to get this podcast delivered directly to you without looking for it, subscribe. And also leave a rating. It helps people find this podcast. But right now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this fun, fun, fun interview with Hank Philippi Ryan. Hank Philippi Ryan, thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I am thrilled to see you today, thrilled to reconnect with you. How you doing? <laughs> I'm great, as great as anything can be these days, sort of one step at a time, one word at a time, trying to count blessings, that kind of thing. I'm just smiling and smiling to see you. It's so great to be able to talk with you. Yeah, you know, I'll tell people, um, I have known you for a long time. First of all, I've seen you on my television when I lived in Boston, as most Bostonians have. But uh, for those of you who don't know Hank, Hank, uh, as I'll say in the intro and in the notes, um, is an acclaimed multi-award winning journalist who uh, at some point decided she wanted to be a novelist as well. And we met through, at the time, my good friend and boss at the time, Suzanne Brockman. And um, I think that's how we met at some, uh, at a writer's event. And I've just been following each other sort of for a long time since then. I was trying to untangle where it was that we met so long ago and far away time just is sort of this weird thing now so it all morphs into a certain oneness i don't know if i decided to also be a novelist we can talk about that because i think the story decided it for me well well let's let me just i'll get to your biography stuff later this is too intriguing to leave there what do you mean by that what do you mean the story decided it you know, I've been a television reporter for 43 years now, which is incredibly crazy. And wow. one of the things you learn, and I, in your profession as well, is there's sort of this blink reflex about a good story, a believable story, a confident story, a story that's worth telling. And I had gotten experience about that over the years as a reporter. I can tell just with the snap of a finger 
whether a story is worthwhile. Sometimes I'm wrong, of course. Sometimes I'm wrong, but usually I'm not. Um, and when I got an idea, I had I was sitting at my desk at Channel Seven, and I just got a good idea for a novel. And I, you know, the feeling when you get a good idea, there's this sort of um, frizzle that goes through you, a, a, a shiver. And your brain says, that's a good idea. Just like, oh, that's a good story. And I, I went home and I said to my husband, I've got a great idea for a mystery. I'm going to write a book. And Jonathan says, that's great, sweetheart. <laughs> he says, do you know how to write a book? And I, and I honestly said to him, how hard can it be? You know, I've read a million of these. I've, I've read mysteries since I was a little girl. Um, of course, I soon learned how hard it could be. But I know it sounds strange, but that story wanted to be told. And who was uh, I, I to say no? No, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are writers uh, will know exactly what you mean. Hmm. And I was reading somewhere, and I forget who says it, of course, because I forget everything, is that sometimes the universe provides you with an idea, just says, you know what, it's your turn and here it is. And you can take it right now if you want to. And if you, and if you don't, it will go away. And I, you know, I didn't, I hadn't thought of anything like that. I never thought about really seriously being a mystery thriller, crime fiction writer, except in passing fleeting moments. So, but it just appeared to me and I thought, thank you so much universe, I will take this. And that turned out to be prime time, my very first novel, there are no novels under the bed. That was my very first novel, which won the Agatha for best first novel. And that was the beginning of my crime fiction career. 15, that, 16 years ago. Yeah, that's amazing. And for people who don't know, there's several um, entities that, uh, that uh, award people prizes or awards. I know that there's a mystery writers uh, group that hands out Edgar's for Edgar Allan Poe. Who, um, who awards Agatha's? The Agatha, named after traditional mystery genius Agatha Christie, of course, is given out by the Malice Domestic Organization every year in a, a convention in near Washington, D.C. called Malice Domestic. Uh, and if you could see me, you could see behind me on my shelves are the teapots. They're black ceramic teapots with pots with white lettering on them that are the Agatha Award, a teapot, obviously, for traditional mystery. So I love, I I love that, that you explained that to me because I was going to ask. <laughs> uh, well, it's so fascinating to me as well because I grew up reading Agatha Christie. I remember the, you know, how formative it was to read Murder on the Orient Express. That was a life-changing novel. Um, and now to, you know, to have grown up being such a fan and uh, such a devotee and then to have won awards named after her all these years later is just such a lovely circle. Um, it's just really astonishing. Touches me every time I see them. What I think is so great about Agatha Christie, well, there's a lot to say that's great, but one of the great things is that she had such great characters who were detectives who were so disparate. Sorry, that's a little noise in the back. <laughs> in my that's very studio sinister. Something's Brooklyn. going on. Yeah, no, everybody's safe. Um, but she had so many different kinds of characters, whether it was Poirot or Miss Marple or, you know, lots of people. And sometimes it was a standalone, I think. Uh, but uh, that is challenging, I think. I mean, when you are all of your, you have now, is it 30? Seven, oh, 37 Emmys, 13 thrillers. By the way, we'll talk about 37 Emmys in a little bit. That's also no <laughs> small achievement. But 13 novels, um, are they 
all tied together with similar characters? Is there a protagonist who is a reporter? Um, what is the story of your stories, of your thrillers? There are different kinds of books. That's a great question because I started out writing a series starring my, my first book, Primetime, was starring Charlotte McNally, who is an investigative reporter in Boston, <laughs> who is worried that- How could you getting, base? I don't have any knowledge about that. It was, really a, it was really a struggle. I scraped the bottom for that, absolutely. Um, you know, she's, she's a, a television reporter in Boston who's worried she's getting too old for TV and wonders what happens when to a television reporter um, who's married to her job when the camera doesn't love her anymore. Again, scraping for the bottom, you know, scraping well, the bottom. I can understand somebody having doubts, but I think that it must be hard for you to walk anywhere around the greater Boston area without people screaming your name. Like you must be one of the most recognizable people in Boston who doesn't play sports for a living. Is that accurate? <laughs> they, may, they may scream my name. It's like, get out of the way. <laughs> uh, you know, that is a really great question. Um, this is something that I embrace and something that I'm grateful for. Uh, and actually something, if we fast forward a bit, and I know we will later, my newest book, Her Perfect Life, is sort of about that. It's about the spotlight and about celebrity and how do you keep a secret when everybody knows who you are. But my first books were sort of um, in a lighter vein. They, they, they aren't funny like Janet Ivanovich, but they're wry and cynical and a little bit of sophisticated humor. There were four books in the Charlotte McNally series, Primetime, FaceTime, Airtime, Drive Time. And then I had... A, I know you'll understand this. I had a bigger idea, uh, an idea for a novel that wouldn't uh, be well done in the first person present tense of the, my first series of books. So I found a new heroine, also a reporter in Boston, a newspaper reporter in Boston, and sort of teamed her secretly with the coolest police detective in Boston. And those became the Jane Ryland thrillers. And those are my first series of thrillers, not a, not a standard mystery, but a, a thriller. Um, and they're dual timelines and they're two points of view and much more complicated construction and a much different tone and a much bigger story. And there are five novels. The first one, The Other Woman, won the Mary Higgins Clark Award and the other ones have won the Agatha. It's been wonderful. And there are five so far of those and one still more under contract. But after I wrote those five books, those are a different series. I got an idea for a standalone, my first standalone psychological thriller. And again, the story dictated the form to me. When I got the idea for Trust Me, my first standalone, I knew it wasn't a Jane Ryland series book. I knew it wasn't a Charlotte McNally series book. This was a standalone, the most important thing that ever happened to the people involved in this book. This is the moment in their life where everything changed um, and nothing will ever be this important again. And I and I and I I had one more novel in my contract, uh, a Jane Ryland novel, and I told this idea to my editor at Forge, my darling editor, Kristen Sevick at Forge, and she said, let's have that right now. Uh, and that became my first standalone, Trust Me. And since then, I've been writing standalones, Trust Me, The Murder List, The First to Lie, and the new one, Her Perfect Life. So all different characters, all different milieu, all different plots, all different setting. Still all, and I have learned this uh, as my stories have developed, still all with the Hank DNA, which is sort of 
two smart women facing off in a high stakes cat and mouse psychological game, but which one is the cat and which one is the mouse? And well, that, well. Sort of, that sort of thread goes through all of them. So, and that's the power, Eric, of a standalone that, you know, in a series, you know where you know who your character is, you know what they want, you know what their job is, you know what their world is, you know who the people in their world are, and you bring in new people and they go on a new adventure. Charlie McNally goes on a new adventure, Jane Ryland goes on a new adventure. But you know, in the end, in a series novel, the main character is not going to die, right? You know, Jane Ryland is not going to die in book three because book four is under contract, so the reader knows she's coming back. So she she may be in danger, but she's not in mortal danger. There's no way, because um, I'm not George R. R. Martin. There's no way that she's going to die. But I mean, just kill people randomly. Willy-nilly, it doesn't matter. You know, gasping, leaving people gasping. Remind me to tell you about that, because we had a great conversation about that. Um, but in a standalone, anyone can be good. Anyone can be bad. Anyone can be guilty. Anyone can start out as a, as, a, as a wonderful, beloved main character and turn into a bad guy. Anybody can be lying. Anybody can be lying. Anybody can be unreliable. And anyone can die. Well, can anyone. I ask you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, for writers listening in, it makes me wonder, um, do you use a standalone? Have you written a few standalones? And do you use them almost like palate cleansers for yourself? so that you can exercise different muscles and, and shake out certain things that you wouldn't be able to do when you're working on your various series? Or was this just uh, luck and you get lucky? Yeah, I, would, I, I, would definitely go, I would definitely go with the luck choice on mm -hmm. that one. Um, it sounds so nice what you're describing, palate cleansers and like there's planning that goes into it and some sort of selection process of the glorious harvesting of ideas. No, I don't have that. I just work in fear the whole time. It's fear. Well, I, you're, fear at, you're at what I think of as Tor Forge, right? They're uh, one of the New York publishing houses. You're still with them, right? All your yes, stuff. Yes. And um, I, have, I have several friends who continue to work there as editors, some who gone, come and gone because publishing is a lot of come and go. Uh, that has been a really great place for you and for a lot of people. Um, was it just, a, did you find a good fit? Did your agent, I don't know who agents you, but did you, was, was that a long process? Was it like, oh my God, I'm in love and we're just gonna stay here forever? What was that like? My agent is Lisa Gallagher. She's quite amazing, uh, quite a powerhouse. And when we had, uh, the other woman, when I had written The Other Woman, my first thriller, and I was sort of trying to see whether I could get, um, set my career on a different kind of path, sort of the thriller path rather than the traditional mystery path. Um, and my books had been previously published by Mira, and I love Mira. They're, it's quite an amazing group of people, and I love them, and we were a great fit too. Um, but when when Kristen Sevick, my editor now, who has been my editor for golly, how many books is that? Ten? I can't even count, but something like that. Um, maybe nine. Maybe. Well, going on. I'll just do math later. But anyway, a lot. Right. Um, saw something in the other woman. And she had told me back then that she just fell in love with the book. She fell in love with everything about it. Um, and we have been together ever since 2011, I guess that was. Uh, working together. And the, Kristen Sevick 
our relationship is the perfect example, I think, of how an author and an editor should work together. She is a genius. She is a genius. And even when she tells me something that I don't agree with, I now have learned to say to her, I don't agree with you now, but in a couple of hours or in a day or so, I will. So that's fine. You know, it. You know, I have, as a television reporter all these years, I've worked uh, collaboratively with editors and producers, you know, for all these years. And so I learned, and one of the wonderful lessons from television uh, is that I've learned that when you have a team partner who whose goal is the same as yours, to have the best product that there can possibly be, that when there is a discussion or a brainstorming session or even criticism of what of the product so far, that a truly honorable uh, and wise collaborator wants the end product to be as good as it can possibly be. And one of the, they're not trying to, we're not trying to be right or wrong for each other. We're trying to be right or wrong for the book. And one of the things that I learned early on in television, uh, I will confess to you, is that I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I mean, imagine that. But someone else might have a good idea. And the idea that someone else might have a good idea that would benefit my book, someone who was on my team, who was working with me, why not embrace that? Why not just grab that and say thank you and run with it? And I do think that's why um, Kristen and I have been such a good team, because we respect each other. We admire each other. You know, I'll say to her, oh, my gosh, how did you think of that? What a good idea. And she'll say it was in there all the time. You wrote it. You just didn't see it. So she can mine my stories to see what I meant to write before I even see it. And that's the glory. That's the joy. So no, no wonder I love working with her because she encourages me like a gardener to produce the kind of story that I meant to write. She shows me what can blossom from the seeds of my words, something that I may not have even realized before. See, I know you're a good collaborator because you, if I may, you have been married for a long time and you and your husband, whenever I see you together, look more in love every time. And you both get better looking and happier together. There's like an energy that comes from me. I'm going to get all new agey on you now, but there's, and he is a powerhouse and I'm not going to go too deep. You know, people can find out when they look you up. He's a prominent attorney and he obviously supports you and everything you do and you support him. Uh, do you find that, that that's also a collaboration, isn't it? A, a good marriage. And do you feel that that supports you and, all the professional endeavors you have? You know, think about what I just said. I mean, it's so wise of you and thank you. And I will tell Jonathan what you said. That is, that's quite lovely. And we feel the same way. When you think about what I was saying about the marriage of between me and Kristen, how we respect each other and admire each other and bring out the best in each other. I think that's what, what happens with Jonathan and me. We didn't get married until I was 46. It was pretty late in my life when we got married. And he is a high-powered criminal defense and civil rights attorney who has had all kinds of adventures and done, he is the best guy. He is the most benevolent, um, wonderful, serious, hardworking, devoted lawyer you could ever possibly imagine who is just a good guy, a good guy in every way. He represented Muhammad Ali in the Supreme Court. He uh, went to um, Mississippi in the 60s and worked in civil rights in those in, in those crazy, horrible 
Summers. Um, he is just a true believer. And he, you know, we connected over stories. We connected over the love of justice, which is one of the themes that runs throughout my books. It, is it also, also runs I, in your journalistic work, though. I mean, yes, what, yes. Uh, you're, you were an investigative reporter when I first saw you on the scene in Boston. And the whole your whole raison d'etre was that you were helping people who like couldn't find a way to get anybody else to help them. That was my, is that accurate or am I making Well, that certainly, up? of course. And that is, and that is exactly what an investigative reporter does, you know, um, not unlike a detective in a thriller, you know, they care about someone who can't get something accomplished. They're caring about someone who has no power. Let's put it that way, a powerless person. And a reporter does have some power. Um, and that gives me a great responsibility to use that power to help people when, whenever I can. So as an investigative reporter, you know, we'd be tracking down clues and following leads and trying to solve an important problem. And in the end, we would, our goal was justice and to change the world a little bit. So with each one of those stories that we did, someone was helped and the, we've changed laws and changed lives and uh, gosh, gotten millions of dollars in refunds and restitution for consumers. We've gotten people's homes out of foreclosure. If you can imagine, um, the rules changed throughout Massachusetts and, you know, uh, mortgage lending and home improvement contracting in every realm, in every realm. And, you know, I've been around for a long time, so we've done a lot of good and made a lot of changes. The thing is that apropos of my novels then connecting with that is that every one of those Emmys you talked about not only represents something that a good change that affected people's lives, but it also made an enemy or two for me. Every one of those Emmys represents someone who wishes I would go away, right? That um, Someone whose secrets I told. Well, people, someone she's not going anywhere. Hank is going to be here. <laughs> I, trust me, if she hasn't gone away yet, she's not going anywhere. I mean, you came from Indiana. I mean, from a completely different world. Um, I know I'm kind of taking us in different places because I want to make sure okay. people get a sense of you. But one of the cool things I saw that I didn't know anything about is that you studied in Hamburg, Germany for a while. And I love Hamburg, Germany. I've been there a bunch of times with my wife. It, I, we live in Brooklyn, but Hamburg feels like the Brooklyn of Germany to me. And I'm just curious, what took you there and what was your experience there? Oh gosh, it was a while ago and it was it's a tiny bit of a convoluted story but my my parents were divorced when I was younger. My father, uh, my wonderful dad was the music critic for the Chicago Daily News. And so I grew up briefly in Chicago with dad, going to concerts with dad and the ballet and he taught me about music and reading and art and my mom went to the Chicago Institute of Design. She was an artist. Um, and when they got divorced, we moved to Indianapolis when I was maybe six or some age like that. Um, and I, my father joined the Foreign Service, joined USIA, and he was a diplomat for, um, the, for all of his life until he retired from the Court of St. James in London um, years ago. Um, so he was stationed, he and his new family were stationed in Hamburg when I was 16. And I went to visit him uh, and his family, we, you know, still close and still uh, wonderfully wonderfully close, um, and went to live with them for a couple of weeks in the summer of 1960, whatever, eight or seven, something like that, six. Um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thought, oh my golly, this is the world. This is real. I was living in Zionsville, Indiana, which is beautiful and bucolic, and but rural and very um, insular, insulated, whatever the word is. 
Um, but, you know, here I am in Hamburg, which is this beautiful, uh, worldly, different center of art and music and intelligence and the Beatles. And, you know, I was just in heaven about it. And so I finagled my way to stay there and went to the international school in Germany uh, instead of coming back to Indianapolis for most of my senior year in high school. Uh, for better or for better or for worse, actually, I loved it. We explored. We went to East Berlin. We, you know, traveled all over Europe. It was it was absolutely formative and terrific. It was also somewhat detrimental to briefly detrimental to the rest of my life since I decided I did not need to go to college um, because the world was out there waiting for me. And why would I do a silly thing like go to college? So. Uh, my mother, so I, de I on purpose, I um, delayed sending in my college application so I would be late everywhere and get turned down uh, on purpose. I mean, I was, what, 17? My mom caught on very quickly, and I went to college. But she, we managed to get me into Western College for Women in Oxford, Ohio, which was Mount Holyoke's Western campus, which doesn't exist anymore. So that's how I went to Hamburg. So Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I have another quick question. I've had some people on before who I love and who are brilliant, who went to all women's schools. Mm -hmm. And I'm always curious about that experience. My college where I went, a place called Union in Schenectady, was all male until like 1970. So I was co-ed at the time. But I often wondered, I had a prejudice that a single sex college would somehow not be good for people. But I've since learned from and again, this is only from women that I've spoken to, very successful women. It was fantastic for them and they loved the experience and they recommend it. What was that like for you? Do you feel the same way or did you have a different experience? Well, uh, when, I, when I went to Western College, uh, I thought this is ridiculous. This is not the real world. Why am I living in this situation where there are only women? And I think it took me about a week to realize how fantastic it was. It was safe uh, in a way that we don't think about safe now, but it, I, no one had to, I think I honestly, Eric wore the same thing for two years. I mean, I mean, for two years. I remember going to German class in, in, my, in my coat and pajamas because no one, you know, the, the idea of being judged by boys, men, completely went away. And so we just had this sort of sisterhood of people who were friends and colleagues and classmates and coworkers. And the, there was a marvelous spirit of exploration and freedom. Um, I, I highly recommend it. I, to, for me, it was a wonderful thing. Do you know, you know, Michelle Slung went to Western College for Women at the same time, who is now an editor of um, a brilliant editor who does the best mystery stories for some publisher, which I forget what is. This is a big deal. And I should know this. Sorry, Michelle. But um, it was this really in, uh, meeting of people, of women who were intelligent and smart and ambitious. And we learned courage and we learned bravery and we learned to stand up for ourselves and we learned a little bit of confidence. So I, I love that. Thank you. Because that was, I hope other people who might have had the prejudice I had um, can hear that women needed to it's unfortunate, but you know, they needed to feel safe, maybe physically. Also, my friend said that it was cool to see like the smartest person in class was a woman. The least smart person in class was a woman. The person <laughs> yeah. who liked doing the painting 
you know, or in drama. Just the whole experience was that women could be and do anything. They didn't have to go into the boxes right away. And I feel like, wow, that must have served a lot of people and still serves a lot of people. It's just, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm way out of college. I don't have any children, but I, you know, at this time, I want to know what's happening for women, for people of color, for queer community, because I think I owe it as a, a citizen of the world to say, look, I'm, I'm a white guy and I should see what else is happening and how other people feel. You know, a little thing called empathy, ladies and gentlemen, check it out, <laughs> um, which seems to be in small supply. I, we have a lot to cover and I'm, I will, by the way, people don't despair. I will have Hank's information on the website, isthatreallylegal.com. You can go there to leave questions or comments for me, but also there'll be information about Hank's books. Uh, her social media, all that jazz. So, but um, as a reporter, um, we are living in, I, you know, to use a legal term, crazy ass times. I, mean, I studied political <laughs> I've science. I've seen that. I've seen that. Okay. I, I studied political science at a very good college. I went to a good law school. I thought I understood how everything was supposed to work. And then, especially over these last four years, and probably long before that, while I was less conscious, things have been a little nuts. Um, do you, have you been looking at that as a reporter? Do you have something to say about that? Is that influencing your work in any way? That's a lot of questions, too many questions. Um, and your husband would probably object, but he's not representing <laughs> you now. So feel free to ask any, all, or none of them. What, what do you, what's your reaction to all of that? You know, just a tiny little nugget of a reaction to that. Um, I have a lot of interns at Channel 7, and I've seen them over the years, and they have gotten less and less curious as the time has gone by. They've gotten less and less, and I don't mean to blanket you all, so just, just let this go. Um, they've gotten less and less curious, less and less analytical, less and less sort of devoted to being a journalist, more and more devoted to being the anchor person who's flashy and on TV and famous and interviewing the sports stars. There's a shallowness that comes. There's also a lack of um, analytical thinking and curiosity. They'll, they'll ask me something and I'll say, what do you think? You know, how would you find that out? Where would you look? What do you think there is? Why don't you just see what the first thing you can find and come back and let's talk about that. And then we'll see where you can go from there. And they're not interested in that. And they're not interested in listening to me. I can't even imagine that. Um, and I think, that, um, you know, imagine, I think that there's a, a lack, and I keep saying this, there's a lack of curiosity about what else is out there in the world and what other ideas someone might have. What I, what I don't hear these days on any, from, from it rarely in, I hear is someone saying, oh, I never thought about it that way. That's interesting. Tell me more about what you think about that. So, because that's new. We have all decided, you know, what we think, and by golly, that's what's real. And that's what, and forgive me for going back to this, but that's what my book, Trust Me, was about. That was absolutely the genesis of my book, Trust Me, because I was wondering what is what is truth? What is that? Um, I was thinking about a reporter who was trying to write um, narrative nonfiction, like an In Cold Blood and what that would be like to write the fictionalized version of a real murder trial, what really happened. And I started thinking, how would you really know? 
you know, how, what is the truth? Is it what somebody tells you? Is it what somebody tells you over and over and over? Is it what you believe? Is it what you hope? Is it what you wish? Is there a true truth? Is there a truth? And how so much of what, you know, even in a, and my husband and I talked about this quite a bit, even in a trial, there are two sides. There's the story that the prosecution tells. There's the story that the defense attorney tells. And then the jury is deciding based on the evidence, one can only hope, which is the better story? Which is the better story? And as a result, who's the better storyteller? And sometimes the better storyteller, the more persuasive storyteller is the one who wins. Is that is that how it should be? And I started thinking there are three sides to every story yours, mine, and the truth. And that is what is on the cover of Trust Me, because that idea of truth, um, going back to your question, and that idea of truth, truth is so elusive and so powerful to me because there is a true truth, but these days um, we've all decided, or so many people have decided what is true, and they just say that over and over. They just say that over and over. And no other thought can get in past that obstacle of this of this barrier of a personal truth. And that's what makes me sad today. Um, the, the, the idea of being open-minded and open to a new idea and curious, back to the interns, curious, like, oh, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? What if there's something, what if there's, what if I'm not making the wisest decision about this? What if I don't have some information? Not don't tell me because I'm, I know I'm right, but oh, you know, tell me more. And that's my whole life is tell me more. My whole life has been tell me more as a reporter, as a friend, as a, as a citizen of the world. Um, and as an author, my whole mantra is tell me more. That's, that's what I love. And that's a story. Well, Tell me more uh, with that. You you said uh, when we got together on this call that you had just made a deadline, I think. Did you just finish a novel and turn it in or was it a deadline for the day job? Uh, it's a deadline for my novel. And sure, it's finished. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Only a writer oh. would know that what you're saying. So let, let me back up a second. What's the latest novel that you have out that people can get their hands on? And then I want to talk about the new one that's in process, if we're allowed to talk about it. Uh, yes, I, it's much easier to talk, and I will happily talk about my new novel as yet unnamed. My current novel, uh, Her Perfect Life, uh, came out, I don't know, in September. As I said, all the time, just all the time, just goes away. I have no idea when it is or what. I think we're all in that place since the pandemic started. Um, and my wife recently retired, although she's very busy doing lots of things, but it's just like suddenly those combination of those things has made time very strange. But anyway, and not, I said to, the, to my husband the other day, and then I promise I'll get back to her perfect life because th that's more important. I said to my husband day, a couple of days ago, you know, there should be a thing that you can look at that tells you what day it is. And my husband says, like a calendar. <laughs> you know, and then of course, so I said, well, the calendar just tells you what day it might be, right? It doesn't tell you what day it is. Oh, that's very, that's very funny. I sort of get that, um, but I do like the idea you may have invented the calendar uh, that will have to update your Wikipedia page. Yeah, uh, please do, please do. Please do. <laughs> 
uh, anyway, uh, her perfect life came out sometime recently, and actually, it got a starred review from Kirkus, a starred review from library. I'm sorry, starred a rave from Library Journal, just crazy rave, and a star from Publishers Weekly, which called it a superlative thriller. So that's pretty great, and it went into a second printing in two weeks. So also a good sign Fantastic. and it um, goes back to you know the story of her perfect life goes back to what we were talking about earlier the spotlight because it's about fame and family there was a thing on twitter that said can you describe your novel in five words and i thought oh sure that's no problem and then i and then it was really difficult and it was kind of informative because to distill her perfect life into five words turned out to be sisters betrayal guilt, fame, and revenge. And you can see the sort of roiling emotions that would go into those themes. So uh, golly, the perfect life stars Lily Atwood. Lily Atwood is a beloved television reporter in Boston. She's so perfect that her fans have given her a hashtag perfect Lily. Everything she does is perfect. Her stories are perfect. She's great as a journalist. She looks wonderful on television. Um, everybody knows her. And that may be her biggest problem because Lily has fame. She has fortune. She has Emmys. She's the single mom to an adorable seven-year-old daughter. But she also has a really deep, dark secret. Um, and she realizes that someone is about to tell this secret. And if they do, her life is ruined and her family is ruined and her career is ruined and there is no coming back from this. Mm -hmm. And she begins to realize that her being in the spotlight has made her incredibly vulnerable and begins to realize that the spotlight is the most dangerous place of all. So as I said, two smart women facing <laughs> off in a high stakes psychological cat and mouse game to prove their truth about a devastating childhood betrayal. But you know what I'm going to say, which one is the cat and which one is the mouse. And that that is her perfect life. So it's a fast paced psychological page, the psychological thriller. It's a page turner. I always say I want you to miss your stop on the subway because you're just reading as fast as you possibly can. So I like it. The way you've described it is, uh, frankly, how do people not just go out and buy it right now? Where fine exactly. is it? Is it um, obviously things are always available as ebooks, but do people get you in hardcover and paperback as well? In hardcover right now, and ebook and audiobook from Macmillan Audio. Terrific reading um, by Angela Daw of the audiobook, and then um, and so that's it for right now. And then later, and in several months, it'll come out in a trade paperback, and then in the summer, it'll be a mass market paperback. Um, but it's out right now and very, I think a lot of bookstores still have the first edition, um, but that is running out very quickly. Right How do you, we, since um, we're going to be running out of time shortly, I wanted to actually ask you about time management. As anyone who knows you from your day job knows, you're very busy and that's a, it is literally, we call that a full-time job. And one of the things that you and I see when we're on social media is how much people are concerned slash complain about not having time to do their writing or whatever the other thing they want to do is. Um, I don't think there's an answer. I just think there's an answer that works for whoever the individual is. But what is your, do you set aside time? Do you, 
I mean, how do you handle that question? Or is it not a question? You just, how do you do it? That's my question. What is this time management thing <laughs> of, of which you speak, Eric? I have no idea. I'm holding up to you. We're on video. I'm holding up to you a notebook. Right. I see it. A daily notebook of the to-do list, which is scrawled in pencil on a spiral notebook. I, every day has a page. I see I one thing that, that hasn't been crossed off that is the most important thing to me. It's cookies. I don't know what that means, but I love cookies. <laughs> I'm hoping you're baking some and sending them to me, but that's very unlikely. Anyway, uh, sorry. It, it could happen. It could totally happen. <laughs> it could happen. I'll just put that on the list. I'll put that on the list. And <laughs> let me say that I am totally up to date on my list, on my to-do list, if this is October. That That is, um, and it is not for you listeners. Uh, how do I break this to you? October. <laughs> <laughs> um, truly, in answer to your question, uh, I try to make writing the book my priority. It is, um, that's my job, that's my responsibility. There is this thing that people call a deadline that I'm pretty um, reliable about. After all these years in journalism, you know, if I went to the news director and said, could I be on the on the six o'clock news at 10 after six? Because I'm not really feeling it right now. You know, I'm not quite ready for this. So, you know, you get this rhythm, this metabolism of being ready when the time that you're supposed to be ready is. You meet your deadline. And even now, um, when I'm not on television every day anymore, when it when it comes up to being six o'clock or almost 11 o'clock when the news is on, I can tell you when that is. I can tell you when it's five minutes till six and five minutes till to 11, because my heart starts going, are you ready? Are you ready? My brain says, are you ready? Are you set to go live? And I have to say to myself, you know, say to myself, you're not on TV. It's all fine. So I, if I don't do my words for the day, there's this sort of psychic weight on my shoulders which doesn't allow me to really enjoy anything else. Um, I try, I went through a phase of trying to write first thing in the morning. Well, that was a disaster. I was just sitting here at this computer with my head clonked on the desk. Um, and I have learned to uh, engage my news reporter metabolism. And I can, I'm really good at writing starting at about two in the afternoon. And, you know, as working up to the deadline for this for television news. Um, and I'm also really good at night. I can I can write uh, way up till 11 o'clock at night and way past that. Uh, so I have learned to harness my personal writing metabolism and I get all the administrative stuff done in the morning, posting on social media, preparing for events, those kinds of things, writing blogs or articles or all those kinds of administrative things, answering fan mail, which is sort of crazy to me, but you know, I love it and I and I embrace it. And I and I tell myself at two o'clock I'm going to stop. At two o'clock I make an appointment with myself. At two o'clock I'm going to write, no matter what happens. Um, so it's sort of putting, doing careerish things in the morning and doing my serious professional writing later in the, later in the day. Now I have so many colleagues who would say you're doing what? That's wrong. You should write first. And I and again as you say, we all do it the way we can. We all do it the way we can and I think the key is to figure out when your brain works the best and make that be the time that you write. I'm also care careful about word count. You know, I'm just like a 5-year-old. I have a chart that tells me how many words I've written and I I know how many words I have to write every day and I sort of emotionally give myself a gold star when I make my 
writing, when I make my writing quota, because, and what that does, and the secret of that is not only my patting myself on the back and I allow myself to succeed every day. I set a goal, a meetable goal. And then when I succeed, I win every day. I allow myself to say, wow, I did my word. I did exactly what I'm supposed to do. You are so good, Hank. And it also, and so I think allow yourself to succeed every day instead of setting yourself up to fail. You know, if you say, I'm going to write 5,000 words and then you don't, which of course you're not going to. Then you think, oh, I'm bad. I stink. I'm terrible. I can never catch up. I'm behind. This is awful. And you get, you seize up your, your writing brain seizes up and you can't do it. So I say, allow your, allow yourself to succeed. And when you have a, 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 when I have a word goal, I don't mean you, but when one has a world word goal, like I do, it makes me think, okay, this is going to be terrible. A lot of this is going to be terrible. And I think too bad. Just keep writing. You can fix it later. And that has been a real lesson for me as well. It doesn't have to be gorgeously perfect the first time it goes on the page. It just has to go on the page. I love that. That's such a good lesson for everybody who does anything creative. Nobody walks up to the canvas and creates the the masterpiece right away. Whatever you're doing, there's always editing of some kind. Hank, I am so sorry, but we've run out of time. I love seeing you. You have so many gems in there. And I'm just eager for when the next book comes out, if I could have you back on and we can talk about it. Would that work for Absolutely. you? Absolutely. I, I, I look forward to that as much as I look forward to having this book be completed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's saying a lot. Well, Hank Philippi Ryan, thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I had so much fun. Thanks. I did too. Thank you for inviting me. Hank Philippi Ryan, I promised you that she was going to be wonderful, and I came through on my promise. So there. You know, you can get her latest book, which is Her Perfect Life, uh, which is available right now, but if you go to her website, and I'll have a link on my website, you can see so many books, um, and you can get into the Hank Philippi Ryan fan club. I don't think there's an official one. I think we just all uh, talk about her when, uh, whenever we can. Um, and of course, if you live in Boston, you know her. If you have questions about Hank or any of the guests or about me, go to isthatreallylegal.com. You can leave me a message there. Uh, you can also follow this podcast on Twitter. Um, please feel free to subscribe to this podcast and also to leave reviews. Um, You can subscribe wherever you subscribe to podcasts. It's kind of all over the place, isn't it? Aren't we all? Um, And on that note, did you get the vaccine already? And the booster's coming out for those of us who were a little older. And I hear it might be clearing for a lot of people. Just do it. Okay? It's safe. It's effective. What else can I tell you? Stop making this political, okay? It's a freaking vaccine. And speaking of political, can we just stop already? Huh? Please wear a mask. Oh my God. Stop wearing yellow stars and claiming your victims. I can't even. I'm exhausted by you people. I, and probably none of you is listening to this. The people who are listening to this are like, yeah, right. What is with these people? I know. I have no idea. <clears throat> Check on your neighbors. Would you see if anybody needs anything? If you've got more money than you know what to do with, you know, give to the local food banks. I've been doing that. That's what really makes a difference. People are having a tough time. Let's look out for each other. 
Isn't that what we're here for? Oh my God. All right, look, thanks so much for joining us this week. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.